Even if you've been following politics for years or decades, you've probably never heard a campaign rally quite like this. But I looked at the numbers. I did some math. This is Andrew Yang, a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination, speaking to a crowd of supporters at a recent stop in Seattle. I'm going to be the first president to use PowerPoint in the State of the Union. How do you feel about that? Yes. Yes, this is the nerdiest presidential campaign in history. We weren't quite there until that moment, but then you just did it. So what would be on your State of the Union PowerPoint? Coming up, it's the Numbers Geek finale as we ask the question, what are the most important numbers for the future of the country and the world? We'll hear answers to that question from a variety of perspectives, starting with the data-driven presidential candidate you just heard, Andrew Yang. Plus, we'll hear from Bill Gates, conservative author and CNN commentator Amanda Carpenter, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and Numbers Geek listeners from across the country. From GeekWire and USA Facts, it's Numbers Geek. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. Stay with us for the Numbers Geek finale as we go on a quest for the most important numbers in the country and the world. We started the Numbers Geek podcast 20 episodes ago in advance of the 2018 midterm elections. Our goal was to ground the conversation in a common understanding of the numbers and the facts behind some of the country's most divisive issues. As a reminder, this is what we were up against. And there is an element on the left, they just hate America. How dare you, as an American, they... <laughs> Really? Have there been a lot of panels where people start yelling and walk off? I never knew what really pissed off the Republicans about the Clinton administration. It was either the peace or the prosperity, but... I'll... This is part of the liberal character. It's not just the violence itself, it is the mob behavior. I feel uh, like the fakest thing about the show was that we had rational Republicans. You just want, you want me to like fall on the stage and say, you're right, the Republican Party sucks, you're right. No, like I'm not going to say that because I, didn't say I the don't Republican believe Party that. Sucks. I, just I don't believe that. Okay, that, that actually Unfortunately, is... that bit of insanity ends our panel. Yes. Um, so we stepped up to the mic over and over again and asked this question. Let's, let's talk about measurable facts, if we could. What are the most important numbers that you think about and that you care about when you think about the future of this country beyond politics? And we did have some success, at least in changing the tone of the conversation. So everybody in the room was yelling until you asked a question about numbers. When you brought it back into the real world and got concrete again, all of a sudden, everyone's fervor died down just enough for the speaker to talk for people to listen. Even if it was short-lived, it worked. It was magic. Over the course of this podcast, we've dedicated entire episodes to the numbers behind the economy, immigration, healthcare, education, trade, military spending, and the middle class. Along the way, we've gotten help from the ultimate numbers geek, Steve Ballmer, the LA Clippers owner and former Microsoft CEO, and our partners at his not-for-profit, nonpartisan civic data initiative, USA Facts. I think it's important when we talk about the common defense to really talk about what's going on on our borders. Let's ground ourselves in what has really happened. 
We talked about health and the Constitution with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me host Peter Sagal. The numbers matter tremendously. We talked about race and economics with venture capitalist Arlen Hamilton. To me, it, it really was a numbers game. It really was a logical conclusion. We talked about education and testing with National Teacher of the Year Mandy Manning. And I think that we should broaden the way that we're showing knowledge. We examined a corporate income statement with Steve. Oh, this company paid almost no income tax last year. Super interesting. And yes, we've been doing a podcast with Steve Ballmer, so we had an obligation, really, to go courtside with him to explore the numbers of the NBA. All right, Steve, so we're in the third quarter here. What, what stands out to you in terms of the numbers so far? We're up 11 points. <laughs> But for the most part, we've focused on the country's key numbers. And then, just recently, we met this guy. Oh, but seriously, like the State of the Union addresses are becoming these bizarre theater performances that are like borderline unwatchable. Am I right? So then you turn it on, you'd be like, oh, I wonder how we're doing. And then I'd be like, hey, guys, like, here's our life expectancy declining. That's terrible. Like, let's try and do something about that. You know, like, like we'd actually see, and then you'd be like, oh, I wonder how we're doing this year. And then I'll have the measurements up, and then we'll get us galvanized and hopefully even start rewarding the individuals and organizations that help make our society stronger. Andrew Yang is an entrepreneur from New York and a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. He wears a math hat at his campaign rallies, which he says stands for Make America Think Harder. How many of you were excited about GDP when you woke up this morning? How many of you were like, I'm going to make a big contribution today. I can feel it. So GDP is going up and up. Meanwhile, more and more Americans are getting left behind. Yang has been calling attention to the effects of artificial intelligence and automation on jobs. He points to the employment data in swing states as the underlying reason for Donald Trump's victory in 2016. As a first step to address this issue, he is calling for a freedom dividend. That would be $1,000 a month for every American over the age of 18. It would be funded by a value-added tax on major U.S. corporations, including some of those driving the automation trend. Beautiful afternoon here in Seattle. As you might imagine, given his focus on numbers, he is very aware of our podcast partners at USA Facts, as we learned when we sat down with him before his recent campaign rally in Seattle. What a great resource. Uh, so overdue. So uh, congrats to Steve and everyone else who was behind that. Yeah, I was talking to them. You are in many ways the data-driven type of candidate that they would ask for. And so if you were to pick KPIs for the country, key performance indicators, the numbers that you would track long-term to gauge the effectiveness of the country, the fate of the country, what would those numbers be? You know, my, my top five would go uh, quality-adjusted life expectancy, childhood success rates, mental health and freedom from substance abuse, average income, and affordability, and uh, clean air and water. Can you give me a quick rundown on the, the state of each of those from, from your perspective? Well, our life expectancy has declined for the last three years, which is almost unheard of in a developed country because of surges in suicides and drug overdoses, both of which have overtaken vehicle deaths for the first time. So our life expectancy uh, is going the opposite direction of GDP, which is painting a very rosy picture. Childhood success rates uh, have stalled at a certain level and our mental health has declined where we have record levels of not just suicide, but also anxiety, depression, stress levels. 
Uh, and so by what I would consider our key performance indicators, we are not doing very well at all. Uh, it's one reason why we need to move in a different direction. Income and affordability, 78% of Americans report living paycheck to paycheck, 57% can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. And in places like Seattle, I mean, if, if you're a techie, you could probably afford living here, but the cost of housing just go up and up, and so people have uh, a hard time affording housing. So if we started paying attention to those variables, uh, then we would see that we are not faring nearly as well as the rosy GDP numbers or the stock market prices uh, or the headline unemployment rate would suggest. Andrew Yang is a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. One important point before we move on, the Obama administration actually used something very similar to PowerPoint in some of their State of the Union addresses. They had an enhanced webcast that placed charts and graphs on screen, showing the numbers behind the issues that were addressed in the speech. But President Obama wasn't there going through his presentation with his clicker, as I could imagine Andrew Yang doing. I also got a chance to ask our question to another candidate for the Democratic nomination, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee, at a GeekWire event last year. I think the number that is um, most important and most challenging is, is 350. Because if we had a world that had 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide, my grandchildren would have a chance to have Washington the way I grew up with. And I grew up with a Washington where the forests weren't catching fire and putting ash on the hoods of our cars like happened this summer. I grew up in a Washington where there were salmon in the rivers to fish for and orca to survive. I grew up in a Washington where we could ski in the winter. And if we maintained about 350 parts per million in our atmosphere, my grandchildren would have a shot of having those things during their life. Unfortunately, we're going over 400 parts per million. That means my grandchildren will fundamentally have a, a uh, degraded Washington state. So that number is striking a lot of uh, uh, more than concern, but absolute terror in all of us parents and grandparents that we have to do something about climate change. Checking the numbers on usafacts.org, there were 408.52 carbon dioxide parts per million in the atmosphere as of 2018. The last time we were below 350 parts per million was 1987. The environment was also on the mind of filmmaker and podcast producer R.J. Cutler when I spoke with him last fall. We were talking at the Politicon Festival in Los Angeles about his podcast, The Oval Office Tapes, which was a scripted comedy show that imagined what was really going on inside the White House. As you think about the issues that you care about, when you think about the future of the world, I don't know how much of a numbers geek you are personally, but are there any big picture numbers that you think of, any, any metrics, key performance indicators, as they would call them in the business world, that you pay attention to? Yeah, I pay a lot of attention to 20 years from now, the temperature is going to rise seven degrees. I don't know what the f people are planning on doing about that, but they best get to work. Any, anything else? That's pretty much, what more do you need? Seriously, what else is there? What else is there? I'm not normally immersed in the world of politics day to day. I've been looking at a lot of government data as part of this podcast that we're doing. Walking around Politicon the past two days here in Los Angeles, it's struck me the blurring of the line between not only reality and fiction, but organic behavior and theater, if I could use those phrases. 
what happens if people are more interested in causing a scene than getting at the truth? And is there a risk that this could be a slippery slope that we're headed toward? Sure. This is why George Washington uh, pleaded for there not to be political parties. And then when Jefferson and Adams went at it for in the in the second presidential campaign of our young nation, uh, uh, the, the, and the newspapers took over and the political cartoonists took over, everybody asked the same questions you're asking right now. And in 1960, when television took over and those who listened to the Nixon-Kennedy debates on radio thought that Nixon had won and those who watched it on TV were certain that the far younger, far more handsome, far less sweaty JFK had won the debates, uh, people asked the same question. Now, I think the real question is what happens when those in power cripple the institutions whose role it is to distinguish the truth and to speak to speak the truth. Another person I spoke with at Politicon was Amanda Carpenter, a former staffer for Senator Ted Cruz, a CNN commentator and the author of the book Gaslighting America. What are the big picture issues that you care about when you think about the future of the country, maybe even putting politics aside? What are your big top two or three issues on your mind? Well, you'll like this one because it's spending. It's the debt. I mean, $21 trillion. People always ask me, how'd you get involved in politics? Were your parents in it? I said, no, no, no. The reason I got involved in politics is because I had no one helping me through college. I went to college on my own, had to navigate the student loan process. And very early on, I wanted to know why does tuition cost so much? Where's it going? Um, it's fine if you want to pay the professors, but they're paying these huge speaking fees to people to come in for $25,000 on campus. And that was really what lit a fire within me. There was an author coming to campus, fine. He's coming to speak for an hour, and that's $25,000. I went to school at a state school in Indiana. That's pretty much my four years. So they're blowing my money in an hour on this guy who I don't even think is that great. And so at that point, I started to uh, want to track the spending at my college to find out why tuition costs so much. And I can never get an answer because everybody was being charged different prices. And there was no transparency in the system. And people just keep coming back to me and saying, well, there's all this financial aid available. I said, yeah, but that's lending if you have someone to co-sign for you. But what happens if you don't? And I just kept running to brick walls. And I wanted to go write about it, you know, for the school paper. Even the summer, I went to the journalism department and said, you know, I really want to write something about this. And they said, well, sorry, this program's only open to journalism students. You're communication studies. And so I couldn't do it. And so at that point, I started a website to start documenting ways that our college was spending money that I disagreed with. And so that very quickly uh, led me to meeting conservative people because they said, you know, they said, are you conservative? And I said, I don't know. And they said, listen, if you care about spending, you're conservative. And, um, you know, that that's ultimately what led my path to Washington is that covering government spending was very similar to tracking tuition spending on campus. What did that teach you about the importance of numbers and about mm-hmm. paying attention to the way government spends money. I I would love to hear more of your lessons on that. Well, I mean, it all comes down to transparency, which is also, you know, a single tenant of the press. And so that's kind of where these paths converge for me, um, is that a lot of people hide the numbers when it comes to spending and what you pay. You know, tuition is such a mess. I, you know, I haven't come close to figuring it out. But the fact that no one will give you a single sticker price for every student and it's different for everybody and they hide it in student loans that the government subsidizes and everyone graduates with $30,000 plus, 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 plus. 
and wonders why, you know, why young, young people aren't buying a house and starting a family earlier. Well, duh, this isn't hard to figure out. The healthcare system, right? It's the same thing. It comes down to what are you paying for healthcare? What's a fair price? Are you going to charge different people different prices? Or are we going to hide the ball between government subsidies and insurance companies? It's very similar to me. And it gets down to, you know, essentially how we live. The debt and the deficit are also key numbers for Steve Ballmer, our resident numbers geek and the founder of USA Facts. He told us about his most important numbers at an event last fall. If you could pick three government numbers, the KPIs of the government that were the only ones you had access to, what would be your three top government numbers that you would track and that you'd want this audience to know? Deficit. Deficit. That represents the burden we're leaving our children to pay. I think that's an important number, one. Number two, it's a set of numbers, but there is a, a survey which we, we call out the American Community Survey where the data is actually collected to show you what people in various income brackets spend as part of their daily life. What do they spend on housing? What do they spend on medicine? What do they spend on education? I think that set of numbers will help people understand how people live at various income levels. That would the second thing I would recommend government understand in these debates, what does quality of life look like for people? That would be number two. And then number three, probably for me, uh, would be where, where are P, the proficiency number uh, on eighth grade math and whatever it is, sixth, fifth grade reading. So I got more than three numbers in there for you. But, but at the end of the day, education numbers have two important things. Number one, they do tell us what the future of our population looks like and how good our schools are. But number two, it tells us how good a job we're doing in putting kids in environments where they can learn. A lot of the reason kids don't learn have to do with uh, dysfunction at home, addiction, mental health problems, uh, public safety issues, crime getting to school, uh, family structure. So the education number describes a lot of things. How people live will give us a sense of kind of between all things government does, what are we, how are we helping people? And uh, uh, obviously, I think the deficit is important because the more we run it up, the harder it's going to be for our kids to earn enough money to pay back the debt we've incurred. Stick around because later on, we'll hear from Bill Gates and Chris Christie about their most important numbers. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back to Numbers Geek. Throughout this season, we've heard from a variety of listeners about the numbers that matter most to them. Hi, this is Kim Johnson from Los Angeles, California. I'd love for you all to explore the numbers uh, related to African Americans broken down by gender and by age group to see whether or not any of the discriminatory language and rhetoric from the people in power uh, within the country um, and the policies that they've pushed forward, particularly over the last couple of years, if that has discouraged people from achieving high school diplomas, from uh, pursuing and achieving college degrees, and from uh, achieving success within the corporate world and even uh, home ownership. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Kim for that question. 
we had the researchers at USA Facts dig into this, and it's probably worth a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation based on the volume of numbers and trends that they found. Just as one example, after adjusting for inflation, median weekly earnings have increased 11% from 1980 to 2018 for the population as a whole. However, earnings increased 7% over that time frame for the black population, and they actually decreased by 1% for black men over that time frame. Keep in mind, we're adjusting for inflation here, which, as we've learned, is an important thing to do to understand the true buying power of the earnings that we're talking about. The USA Facts 2019 annual report and 10K document have a bunch of numbers and charts showing trends in education, income, and other measures, including employment numbers broken down by race, gender, and age. That's on page 38, and you can download the report at usafacts.org. On the topic of education, here's another listener question from Patrick Ehrman. Thank you for this opportunity. A number that can surface a variety of stakeholder viewpoints is 20.8%. This is the number of 25-year-olds that have attained a bachelor's degree. Why do only one in five students persist? Questions from those multiple stakeholders can lead to other data sets and deepen understanding for parents, educators, and policymakers. Reference NCES Table 104.30. I love that citation. By the way, I double-checked Patrick's math on that chart at the National Center for Education Statistics, and he's right. The USA Facts 2019 annual report goes into a lot more detail, including educational attainment by state. And you can find that on page 53. And again, you can download that report at usafacts.org. College education was also on the mind of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie when I asked him about his most important numbers during a public appearance last fall. Governor Christie, I know you're a data-driven person. As you think about the future of the country, not politics necessarily, but the fate of the United States long-term, what are the numbers that you care about most that you pay attention to and what would you like them to be long-term? You know, to me, one of the most important numbers to look at is the percentage of our population that's being educated. And by being educated, I mean either vocational education or college education. Um, we no longer have a, an economic system that's going to allow us to have high school graduates be able to make a middle-class living. They're going to need some other type of training. And whether that's four-year college or whether that's vocational, it doesn't matter to me, but it's got to be one of them. And so continuing to see that opportunity for people to get that education rise, I think is the single most important indicator for the future of your country. Because if we don't have people who can strive towards and achieve a middle-class existence, then you become politically unstable. How can we do that? How can we improve? Well, I think, listen, I think that one of the ways to do that is to, is to start investing more in vocational education and I think it's, I think we're in a society now where people consider if you don't go to a four-year college, you're a failure. And I think that's wrong. The four-year college isn't for everybody. And, and the fact is that I know in my state, for instance, we've got really high paying jobs in the building trades that are going unfilled because we don't have enough trained people to do it. And those are jobs where you can make in a place like New Jersey, a hundred to $175,000 a year as a building trades person. I mean, that's, a really good living, even in a state like New Jersey, it's a really good living, right? So I think what we need to do is political leaders need to start giving permission to parents and to children to do something other than four-year college if that's where 
their heart draws them to and their skills draw them to. But we keep talking about the only way that success is defined is by going to Harvard. And that's not it. And I sure as hell didn't go to Harvard. So, <laughs> sir. According to the USA Facts 2019 annual report, page 42, 13.8 million people were enrolled in four-year colleges and universities in the U.S. as of 2017. By comparison, 6.1 million people were enrolled in two-year colleges, and that was down from 7.6 million people as of 2011. Next up, Bill Gates. Of course, when I interviewed the Microsoft co-founder earlier this year for a GeekWire story about the Bill and Melinda Gates annual letter, I just had to ask him about his most important numbers as well. When you think about the future of the world, what are the numbers that you think about most and care about most? Think of it almost like the KPIs of the globe, the key performance indicators of the globe. What are the things you think about? What are they? And, and what would you want them to be to, to signal success in the future? Well, we have the so-called sustainable development goals, uh, which are, you know, the UN adopted set of measures that everybody got a weigh in. And it's actually the second round. We had the MDGs, Millennium Development Goals. Uh, those were in some ways simpler, but they really broke through and were helpful for people prioritizing things. So then every cause said, okay, uh, you can't keep it so simple because you didn't have environmental goals in there. Or your education goal was just about attendance. It wasn't out about quality of education. And you know what about handicapped people? So now... The SDGs, you know, there's 17 broad groups, but 119 indicators. That is kind of this effort to have a report card. The exemplar in terms of really doing measurement well is the health field, which is called SDG3. And part of the reason is that here at the University of Washington, the International Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, the group that Chris Murray runs, who I'll actually... Uh, uh, see today because we touch base on their insights on a regular basis. It's pulling in all the studies, all the surveys, and it, you know, when people disagree about the statistics, they have a whole process they go through about, okay, what should the error bars be? Did we do this thing right? So the world has now a actually very high quality, and it's not just for poor countries. If you go to this, um, type in global burden of disease, and the interaction where you can try, okay, look at this age group, look at over time compared to countries. Anyway, it's phenomenal. Uh, it's, their software is very good. Uh, so that is an exemplar. So we're hoping to get areas like education or social services to be at that same thing because in health, we can see pretty quickly what's going wrong and actually then you know, uh, have some reaction to that. Um, so, you know, the childhood death number, if you have to pick a single number, uh, the percentage of kids who die under the age of five, or, you know, the life expectancy number, there's some pretty, there's some numbers that capture quite a bit. Most people don't realize those numbers are, are improving a lot. Uh, you know, still some room to go, 5% of, in globally, 5% of kids uh, die before the age of five, you know, 1%, less than 1% in rich countries, and in some countries like Nigeria, still uh, over 15%. So quite a uh, 
a contrast. Why is that such a strong indicator for you of the, a variety of other things? Well, it's a pretty universal value that you want your children to survive. It also turns out as you help children to survive, people choose to have less children. And so, you know, feeding the world, having stability, educating everybody, uh, you know, dealing with environmental challenges, that health thing is very, a very prime thing. And there are some extremely uh, effective interventions where for less than $1,000 a year, you can save those lives. And as we get more and more vaccines, we will get to the point where uh, a child born in Africa doesn't have a significantly greater chance of dying in the US. In my lifetime, that is not a uh, idealistic goal. That is a concrete, hey, you know, here's what remains in terms of causes and scientific work that needs to be done uh, to make that a reality. And finally, here is the take from the West Wing, both real and imagined. I asked our question about the most important numbers to track in the country and the world during a panel with Ben Rhodes, a former Obama staffer in the real West Wing, and he's followed here by Bradley Whitford and Richard Schiff, who played Josh and Toby in the television version of the West Wing. This was before the midterm elections. I think the numbers to look at, and if there's a good numbers podcast to break this down, though, I look at how does the aging of a population in, in a Western country counteract the progressive nature of young people? Because essentially, you know, to put it in numbers basis, more people are living longer. So actually, that is overwhelming the younger vote. Um, because essentially you have, in, in England, where I was talking to people, much more people living longer lives who vote for more right-wing and reactionary policies. And so demographically, I think the thing to look at essentially is what is the delta between how an aging electorate in these countries is shifting politics to the right? Because you've got people who, who and, and I cannot stress how irresponsible this is. I, I, I have two young daughters. And when you have young daughters, the issue of climate change just becomes that much more extraordinary. The, 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 that I know that essentially they are going to deal with challenges in their lives that I can't imagine. Every single US president after Donald Trump, climate change is going to be the most pressing issue for them. It is gonna make the Cold War look like it was barely an organizing principle for American politics when you think of the scale of the threat. And yet old people aren't voting on that and they don't care about it. And so I, I think one of the challenges numerically is looking at what is the aging population of advanced democracies and how does that balance against younger voters? And, and what that means is younger voters have to turn out in even greater numbers if they don't want people who aren't going to be around when the consequences of their decisions are made to be making those decisions for them. Because there's something very immoral about the fact that young people are going to get screwed on everything, on, on, on the budget, on tax policies, on whether or not they can count on health care on climate change, they're getting screwed by people who are not gonna be around for those decisions. And, and, and that to me says that we have to mobilize young people or else you know, we're all gonna be screwed. Yeah, Obama, Obama has a great thing where he says, like, you know, he says to his daughters, you wouldn't let your grandmother dress you or make your playlist you know, why, why are you letting, uh, letting us uh, decide your future? And what kids need to, uh, it is so easy to be cynical, obviously at any time 
look at, looking at politics, but what kids need to understand, which, which is what these Parkland kids understand, is that their future is an act of creation, and that and an act of imagination and, and, and of their building. They are not at the mercy of it. That's where cynicism lives. And we need to get them engaged in the political process that way. There's, a, there's another, I'm a numbers guy. Um, I, was, I used to study the sporting news, the statistics of the of baseball players and came up with these metrics way before these guys did. Um, but uh, another, another number that's interesting is, and I think it's the very core of why uh, the Trump um, thing has been successful. And that is that um, Hispanics were projected to be a majority in this country at some point in the near future. And, what, and what's confusing to me is as I hear the recent polls as to how uh, much the Hispanic vote is, uh, is, is likely to vote, it's very low. Um, and talking about determining your own future, here we're talking about immigration and building up a wall and, and, and kids being separated from their families at the border. Uh, and this particular demographic has something that can, be, that can make a difference in, in three weeks. Make a difference, end it in three weeks. And yet there's a possibility that they're not going to show up to the polls in overwhelming numbers. And there's a possibility they're not going to vote the way you would think they would vote in overwhelming numbers. According to a recent report from the U.S. Census Bureau, voter turnout among 18 to 24-year-olds rose from 20% in 2014 to 36% in 2018, and it was the largest percentage point increase for any age group. And that is a wrap for Numbers Geek. This is the final episode of the podcast, but before we say goodbye, we've got some thanks to give. Thanks to Kevin Lasoda, GeekWire's technical guru, for his help throughout the season, and to the GeekWire team for their help and support as we worked on this project. Thanks to Killer Infographics for their work on Numbers Geek graphics and visuals, and to Daniel L.K. Caldwell for composing the Numbers Geek theme song that you're listening to right now. I think I'm going to make it my ringtone. Thanks to the LA Clippers organization for all of their help with our basketball episodes. Go Clips! A huge thanks to the team at USA Facts for all of their work and support over the past year. It's an incredible initiative, and I encourage everybody to visit usafacts.org, check out the annual report, and subscribe for email alerts to keep up with all of the latest numbers about the state of the country. And thanks to all of you for listening, reading, and watching. If you missed anything, you can find past episodes and videos at geekwire.com numbersgeek. And be sure to subscribe to our long-running GeekWire podcast, where we host weekly discussions, roundups, and interviews. And finally, a big thanks to Steve Ballmer. We had a ton of fun working with him behind the scenes, as you can imagine. And it's inspiring to see his commitment to the cause of grounding our national conversation in numbers and facts. And with that, we will give Steve Ballmer the final word. You got to look at the numbers, which is why me and Todd, we are Numbers Geeks. All right. Steve Ballmer, the ultimate numbers geek. You can check out the podcast at geekwire.com slash numbers geek. Be sure to check out the underlying data at usafacts.org. Steve Ballmer, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody.